Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. We have laid Margaret to rest. Until the day I die, I, nor no one, will ever possibly know the real truth because this country is corrupt and rotten to the core. This is an extract from the diary of Mary Perry on July the 4th, 1992. Today we again head to Northern Ireland in the early 1990s to look at a number of devastating murders amid the confusing political climate in Northern Ireland at the time. Whenever I cover any story involving the IRA, I appreciate I'm on tricky ground and I'm always criticised for taking a side, which I'm not. But I think it's vital that the stories are shared with a wider audience and we shouldn't shy away from telling these stories. The politics of Northern Ireland at the time, as today, were complex and the emotions stirred by the events I'm going to cover are still very strong. But in today's case, the politics is just the backdrop to a very human story. As in every other case covered by this podcast, I'm interested in the stories of the people who were involved and how and why they acted as they did. But before we begin, let's create some context for June 1991. I want to sex you up by Colour Me Bad top the UK chart with Madonna's Holiday at number 5. In the US, Paula Abdul was number 1 with Rush Rush, soon to be knocked off the top spot by EMF and their classic You're Unbelievable. I still love that song. In Australia in 1991, the top three selling albums were Rise by Daryl Braithwaite, never heard of him, Vagabond Heart by Rod Stewart, and The Eurythmics with their Greatest Hits album. As we're hitting controversy this week, we may as well start with the news that this month, Pope John Paul II compared abortion to Nazi murders. I mean, seriously? Mikhail Gorbachev won the 1990 Nobel Peace Prize. I wonder if his successor Putin will be in line for the next award. This month also saw Thirsty Boris Yeltsin elected president. A spectator was killed by lightning at the US Open Golf Tournament at Hazeline, which was won by the late Payne Stewart. Slovenia and Croatia declared independence from Yugoslavia. And in cinema, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves Open, starring Kevin Costner and Morgan Freeman. Mulligmore is a village on the Mulligmore Peninsula in County Sligo, Ireland, about 10 miles from the border with Northern Ireland. It's a great holiday destination, it's got fantastic ocean views and a skyline dominated by the wonderful shape of the Ben Bulban Mountain. Mulligmore is one of the best big wave surfing locations in the world and on the 8th of March 2012, surfers from all over the world rode waves up to 15 metres high off the head there. Pretty awesome, huh? Unfortunately, though, for many, it's better known for the events of August the 27th, 1979. Lord Louis Mountbatten, the former Viceroy of India, cast off on his boat, Shadow 5, from the harbour 
with his three passengers, 15-year-old boat hand Paul Maxwell from Enniskillen, Mountbatten's 14-year-old grandson, Nicholas Catchpole, and his daughter's mother-in-law, Baroness Bradbourne. It was at about 11.30am when the IRA bomb detonated on the boat. A witness said that the blast blew the boat to smithereens and hurled all occupants into the water. Nearby fishermen raced to the rescue and pulled Lord Mountbatten out of the water, but his legs had been almost severed by the explosion and he died shortly afterwards. Other survivors were pulled out of the water and rushed to hospital, but the people I've just mentioned didn't survive the blast. A statement from the IRA read, This operation is one of the discriminate ways we can bring to the attention of the English people the continuing occupation of our country. And this attack was followed only hours later by the massacre of 18 soldiers killed in two booby trap bomb explosions near Warren Point, close to the border with the Irish Republic. There is no memorial to Mountbatten or indeed to the other three victims. And there is also no memorial to another person who was murdered in Mulligmore a number of years later in June 1991 due to the political troubles in Northern Ireland. It was on the 30th of June 1992 that a young woman's body was discovered in forestry near Mulligmore, not far from the castle where Lord Mountbatten used to holiday. That woman was 26-year-old Margaret Perry. Like many Catholics in Northern Ireland after World War II, Margaret's mum, Mary Perry, grew up in a poor and deeply conservative family. In an article for the Washington Post, Steve Cole talks of how her father cleaned drains for the Ministry of Agriculture and the family of nine lived in a two-bedroomed house with no electricity and no running water. And then came the troubles. By the time they began in 1969, Mary Perry and her husband, from whom she later separated, and their three children had migrated from the countryside into Porterdown, a modest market town of 25,000 people with a majority Protestant population. They lived in a state-subsidised row house in a mixed neighbourhood that was about three-quarters Protestant, just one of the scores of public housing estates that spread across Northern Ireland as the post-war British welfare state swelled. As sectarian rioting escalated and as British troops arrived to quell the unrest, the streets of Porterdown filled with angry young men. A gang of Protestant youths turned up at the Perry door and announced, you have 24 hours to move out or you'll be burned out. The Perry's Protestant neighbours stepped outside and told these thugs to leave them alone. They were told to get back inside or the same thing would happen to them, so they went back inside. The Perry stayed about a week with a British Army guard posted on their doorstep. Mary worked the telephone to find a Protestant family under similar pressure in a Catholic neighbourhood, which she did, and the two families made a private, informal deal to swap their allocated public houses. Thousands of such deals were struck across Northern Ireland between Catholics and Protestants, as the rioting spread. At night, when there were gunshots, the Perrys lay on their floors and waited. So frightened was Mary Perry of random ricochets that she refused to allow her children to venture out for neighbourhood bonfire parties after dark. Her only daughter, Margaret, who was five when the troubles began, had a room of her own on the second floor. 
and Margaret was a sweet, a shy, a tomboy. She did well at school and she was devoted to Liverpool Football Club and spent a lot of her time playing football in the streets around where she lived. Then early in 1990, Margaret Perry fell in love with a man called Gregory Burns. They were neighbours. Margaret's mum didn't approve, as Burns was already married, although separated from his wife and children, who lived a few doors away from him. Mary Perry had no time at all for him, but like many children, Margaret Perry defied her mum and moved in with him. Her late teens and early 20s had been pretty tough years. She struggled with mood swings and she drunk probably a bit too much. But she'd fought to recover and she'd now landed a well-paying civil service job in nearby Lisbon. On the day they set up house together, Burns walked over to the Perry Row house to carry out Margaret's belongings. Margaret's mum, Mary, cornered Burns in the hall. If you do her any harm, I will kill you, she said. I wouldn't hurt a hair on her head, he responded, because I love her. To what degree Margaret Perry understood it at the time is not clear, but as she carried her boxes out of her mum's house, she was moving in with the IRA. The IRA, in their part of Northern Ireland in Churchill Park, consisted at least substantially of three young men, Burns and the two friends with whom he spent lots of time during the day, Aidan Stars and Johnny Dignam. All three lived within easy walking distance of one another. Stars was the OC, or the officer commanding, while Burns was the quartermaster in charge of weapons and supplies, according to statements later issued by the IRA. The trio were pretty rough, tough, intimidating, a source of fear for many of their neighbours. Star and Dignam had both been to prison. Star for being caught while ferrying a box of grenades across Porter Down, and Dignam for tossing a live grenade into a Protestant club. The IRA's so-called military activity pursued by Burns, Stars and Dignam around the time that Margaret Perry left her mum's house did not really amount to much. In retrospect, much of the military activity seems to have involved having caches of weapons and moving them from one hiding place to another and worrying about who in their midst might be a police informer. Their armed struggle, as the IRA prefers to call it, involved a significant degree their own Catholic neighbours, who recalled gunshots fired in the night in the alleyways of Churchill Park, a kneecapping shooting of a local teenager accused of theft, and the robbery of the Catholic-owned snooker club. When Aidan Starr's former girlfriend brought home a couple of men from a nightclub, the three IRA men burst in and beat the men with bars, neighbours recall. The trio and the movement they represented were not particularly popular. During local elections, Catholics in Northern Ireland cast most of their votes for a non-violent Catholic nationalist party. Only about a third, 10% of the total population in Northern Ireland, voted for the IRA's party, Sinn Féin. Gregory Burns asked Margaret Perry to leave his house just before Christmas 1990, less than a year after she'd moved in. Burns had a new girlfriend. He sent stars to tell Margaret the news. And Mary Perry remembers that she was shattered, just completely shattered. Margaret made that humiliating short walk back to move in with her mum. She kept on with her civil service job, but she changed. She was much subdued. She didn't go out much. She drank with a friend across the main road, but she managed to put her life back together. And by June, she had plans to buy her own house. 
but Burns, although officially unemployed, did not break all contact with her. At the end of every month, when Margaret Perry got her paycheck, he phoned. On June the 21st, 1991, Margaret Perry left her mum's house for work as usual, and later Mary Perry phoned her daughter at the office and discovered she'd called in sick. She suspected that Margaret was spending time with Burns. Margaret did phone her mum at the restaurant where she worked as a waitress later in the afternoon and said, I'll be back home late for my tea. You're not at work today, Mary replied. Margaret, I think it's time you see about yourself. Without another word, Margaret Perry hung up the phone and her mum never heard from her again. A year passed with no news about what had happened to Margaret Perry. Her distraught family suspected the involvement of Burns but there were seemingly no clues to what happened to her. Then almost a year later, just before Easter 1992, a tabloid newspaper called The Sunday World published a story declaring it had found the solution to the Margaret Perry mystery. The Portadown woman Margaret Perry, who disappeared last June, was beaten to death by a former IRA man, the story said. It spoke of Republican sources, and although it didn't mention specific names... It implicated Burns, Stars and Dignam in either the murder itself or a cover-up. But still the trio roamed Churchill Park without a care in the world. Mary Perry grew so enraged that one afternoon she found Burns at a local bakery, she screamed accusingly at him, she forced him outside and she hit him repeatedly with a stick. Burns covered himself up and told Mary Perry that she was crazy. But finally a stranger called and it was all over the waiting. On the 30th of June, just over a year after her daughter had disappeared, came the unannounced visitor to Mary Perry's doorstep with a message from the IRA. When he was gone, a priest arrived. A message had come from across the border from the Republic of Ireland that she would need comforting, the priest said. And just after midnight, the telephone rang. It was a Portadown police inspector. Margaret Perry's remains had been found by a priest in a forest near Sligo. It appeared that Margaret had been murdered shortly after she disappeared, the inspector said. She had been strangled and beaten with a blunt instrument, then buried in a shallow grave. But there was more to tell. Three naked, hooded male bodies had been found dumped on roadsides along the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. The victims had each been shot in the head. And both you and I have a good notion of who they are, the police inspector told Mary Berry. A BBC news report at the time described the turn of events in the following way. The IRA has admitted killing the three men found by the army at different roadsides in South Amar last night. They claim the men were informers for MI5 and the Royal Ulster Constabulary Special Branch and they have been tried and killed by the IRA. The victims were from Portadown, County Armagh, and had been identified as Gregory Burns, aged 33, John Dignam, aged 32, and Aidan Stars, 29. In a style typical of IRA ritual killings, the bodies were found in ditches, naked and hooded, with evidence of beatings and single bullets through the backs of their heads. The IRA tried to justify the murders in an unusually detailed statement, outlining the alleged intelligence work of the three and linking them to the murder of Margaret Perry. The IRA claimed that Margaret was having an affair with one of the dead men, Burns, who we know, 
but said she threatened to expose the group's intelligence links to the IRA, so they kidnapped and murdered her. Mary Perry helped carry Margaret's coffin to St John the Baptist Church above Churchill Park. Margaret's memorial service was held just an hour before Dignam's in the same church. They were buried 15 yards away from each other in the cemetery behind the sanctuary, neighbours still. Dignam's wife Claire Dignam ordered an inscription for her husband's tombstone, a dear husband, father and son. Mary Perry ordered an engraving of two lines from a poem her daughter had written years earlier. Put your faith in God and friends, and if you can do this, then your life never ends. On the tombstone between these lines, Mary Perry inscribed, The irony of it all, Mum. After the back-to-back funeral, she says, I felt like going and dancing on Dignam's grave. She was furious that the police might have known the truth during the year that Margaret was missing. She was determined to discover the facts, but deeply bewildered about where to begin, who to trust. She said, I do not know what to make of the faceless men who knew what happened. Give me a damn good reason why, she wrote in her diary. She felt no gratitude towards the IRA. I've no regard for them, she said. The ones who murdered those three are murderers too. In all Christianity, I can't condone that either. But the police were of no help. They were a hindrance. I'm still a non-political person. All I was looking for was fair play. As you can imagine from what we've heard already, for the family of Margaret Perry and the three men killed by the IRA, getting to the facts of what happened is not easy and the nature of the propaganda on both sides of the conflict makes the truth very difficult to find. But I'll tell the rest of today's story to the best of my knowledge from a number of sources. But first, we need a brief introduction to the IRA's Internal Security Unit and the British Army's Secret Force Research Unit, or FRU. Writing in Open Security, Ed Maloney and Bob Mitchell provide a clear explanation of the FRU. It was a direct line of descent from another military intelligence unit called the Military Reaction Force, created to battle the modern IRA. This was the brainchild in 1971, of the British Army's 1st Brigade Commander of the Troubles in Belfast, General Sir Frank Kitson, as he eventually became. Kitson was a counterinsurgency expert and theorist who had seen service in Kenya, Cyprus, Malaya and in Amman. Both the Military Reaction Force and FRU originated from or were variants on Kitson's theory of counter-gangs, the idea that armed groups could be subverted by activists drawn from their ranks and turned against former comrades. At the time of Margaret Perry's death, the FRU was being run by Brigadier Gordon Kerr. Kerr was born in Aberdeen. His military career began when he was commissioned into the Gordon Highlanders on a special regular commission shortly after leaving university in 1970. He served in Cyprus for his first posting in Northern Ireland in 1972 where he worked as an undercover intelligence officer. Between 1972 and 1987, he worked in a variety of posts related to army intelligence in Northern Ireland, Berlin and at army training centres in Britain. He transferred to a regular commission in 1974 and transferred to the intelligence corps in 77. He was promoted lieutenant in 71, captain in 74, major in 1980 
Lieutenant Colonel in 1987, Colonel in 1993, and Brigadier in 1998. So Kerr's FRU were in place in Ireland. But of course, an organisation like the IRA was fully aware of these tactics, and they set up their own internal security unit to uncover those suspected of working with the British government. A name familiar to many of you, Freddie Scapacci was a senior figure in the IRA's counter-espionage section, the Internal Security Unit or the IRA's spy catchers. This unit was given extraordinary powers to investigate the IRA at all levels and to uncover any levels of IUC, British Army, MI5 agents, anyone working against the IRA. Alfredo Scap Scapacci had a fearsome reputation as a ruthless psychopath. In his book, Killing Rage, Eamon Collins, the IRA man who became one of the organisation's most vociferous critics before his former comrades murdered him in 1999, tells a revealing story. Collins first met Scap when he joined the Provisional's Internal Security Unit, which was known colloquially as the Nutting Squad. Scap was a senior figure, responsible for sniffing out and killing informers. Collins asked him if they always told people they were going to be shot. Scap turned to the head of the nutting squad and started joking about one informer who'd confessed after being offered an amnesty. Scap told the man he would take him home and Scap had told him to keep the blindfold on for security reasons as they walked away from the car. It was funny, he said, watching the bastard stumbling and falling asking me as he felt his way along the railings and walls, is this my house now? And I'd say, no, not yet, walk on some more. And then you shot him in the back of the head, said John Joe, and both of them burst out laughing. In practice, there was little that the unit did not know about the IRA's affairs, and so an agent inside this group would be of enormous value to the British. According to IRA sources... Over the years, several key members of the Internal Security Unit were suspected of being informers, and later it was revealed that Scap himself was actually working for the British government, where he was known as Steakknife. But going back to our story, the IRA claimed that the three men murdered after the discovery of Margaret Perry's body were working for the British government. They said that Dignam had been detained by the police over Margaret's disappearance in the summer of 1991. During interrogation, it was claimed, he confessed to her murder and implicated the other two men as well. Instead of arresting the three men, they were recruited as informers for the Force Research Unit. The IRA also claimed that Gregory Burns had been a paid agent of the British Security Forces for the past 13 years since they recruited him in Enniskillen. The IRA thought that Burns had been instrumental in foiling many IRA operations in Northern Ireland. When it happened might be in dispute, but sources do seem to agree that the three friends, Burns, Stars and Dignam, were recruited by the FIU. But there was a problem with Burns, who, according to an article in the Sunday Herald, appeared to enjoy spending time with women and was known as something of a ladies' man. As we've already heard... Although he had a long-term relationship, he'd also begun an affair with Margaret Perry and at least one other person. Burns didn't keep his mouth shut 
and Margaret Perry found out that he was working for British intelligence, one FRU officer said. He tried to convince Margaret he was a double agent the IRA planted within the army, but she didn't buy it. One FRU officer told the paper, Burns contacted us and told us the game was up. He said he'd been compromised and that he, Stars and Dignam wanted out. The three expected the FRU to set up a resettlement package, a new home, a new identity, a new job and a sizeable payoff. Burns' handlers went to Brigadier Care, the head of the FRU, and said they needed to get the three of them out quickly. One FRU officer said, Resettling agents is part of the deal. Who on earth would agree to work as an agent for the Brits inside the IRA if they knew that if they were rumbled, we'd abandon them and let them die? But Kerr wasn't having any of it. He said it was all Burns' own fault and he should get out of the mess himself. He said that he should silence Perry. The reason it's alleged that Kerr didn't want to resettle them was that it cost so much money and manpower. MI5 have to get involved the local special branch in the location the person is resettled, need to watch them, and he maybe saw it as too much hassle. Burns was horrified by this response and came back saying that if he wasn't pulled out of Northern Ireland, he'd have to kill the girl. Kerr was told about this and he spoke to Burns's handlers, telling them to let Burns know that the FRU could not be threatened. According to the soldiers who worked under him, Kerr had sealed the fate of Margaret Perry, Burns, Dignam and Stars. It was a disgraceful breach of promise, one FRU officer said. There is no doubt an informer who is in risk of their life is capable of murder. We all knew that. Who wouldn't kill to avoid being tortured and executed by the IRA? These people provided us vital information and we owed them. It's Kerr's fault. Murder was now inevitable. Burns had previously broken his arm, but it had never set properly the FRU officer explained. He booked himself into hospital over the Irish border and arranged for Margaret Perry to visit him to talk about what she was going to do. Dignam and Stars arranged to take her there. On the 21st of June, after Margaret had spoken on the phone to her mum Mary, Dignam and Stars drove Margaret to Sligo, ostensibly to see Burns, but outside Mulligmore she was strangled and beaten to death with a spade, her body buried in a shallow forest grave. Burns was informed by his friends that she was dead, and he checked himself out of hospital. He told the FIU the matter had been taken care of, and that she was dead. When Margaret's body was found in June 1992, almost a year after she died, the IRA were told by sympathisers in the Republic of Ireland Police Force that Burns and his pals were suspected of being involved. The IRA straight away thought they could have been working for the British and picked them up for interrogation by the IRA's internal security unit. The next week must have been a living hell for the men as they were tortured extensively. When they were found, all three had been stripped and shot through the head. Cigarettes had been stubbed out on Burns' thigh and there was a poker mark on Starr's arm, shown clearly to those who found the bodies that they had been tortured. A letter from Dignam, written during this period, was given to his wife Claire, who was expecting their third child, at his funeral. It read, I have only a matter of hours to live. I only wish I could see you and the kids one last time, but as you know, this is not possible. Keep your chin up, 
All the best with the new baby I will not see. Tears are streaming down my face now. Tapes of the alleged confessions were sent to a British journalist. On the tapes, which the journalist believed to be authentic, although others have cast doubts on this, Burns, Stars and Dignam detail their supposed relationships with British intelligence and they speak in flat, lifeless voices how they plotted to kill Margaret Perry whilst keeping the Northern Ireland security forces fully informed. Burns blames Stars. He told his IRA interrogators that Stars would come up with murder plans like he wanted me to get her drunk and he was going to come in with a shotgun. But Aidan's the kind of man you wouldn't be in the same room with a shotgun. If Aidan's going to take someone beside you, he'd shoot you very quick. Burns continued, Every time Aidan came up with an idea, I contacted my handlers and told them what we were doing about it, or what could I do about it. And they kept saying to me to just keep putting him off, or keep her out of his way, or take her out that night and keep her out till later on, or don't get her as drunk as he'd like her to be. They knew exactly from the word go that he was going to kill this girl. After the murder, Burns continued, I phoned my British handlers on Sunday and told them that the girl was dead. My words were, she's dead now. What the hell is going to happen now? With these tapes, it is of course highly advantageous to the IRA's propaganda efforts to have people believe that the British government, in its thirst for intelligence information, would tolerate murderers on its agent's payroll. By confessing with such details, were Burns, Stars and Dignam merely telling the court-martials what they assumed the IRA wanted to hear, in the hope that this might spare them execution? Because surely they'd have known that by confessing to being informers, they were setting themselves up to be executed. The IRA would always kill suspected British agents. As is often the case in Northern Ireland, the facts are hard to get. Gregory Burns' sister, Angela, insists that Gregory wasn't an informer. As far as I know, his killing was never investigated, she said. Anybody that was an informer, you used to hear about them having big money. Gregory never had any money from one Wednesday to the next when he got his sick pay and could afford to buy cigarettes. The truth is very hard to come by, said Claire Dignam, as she compares her husband's confession tape with the events she witnessed, and she concludes that her husband Johnny was never an informer against the IRA, but that somehow he was caught up in events beyond his control. She tries to explain this to her two sons and her daughter, born after Dignam's death. She finds it very difficult. She tries to keep fresh roses on Johnny's grave, but this too is difficult. She said that she dreads going to the cemetery because she might run into her neighbour Mary Perry. I feel so much for the woman, Claire Dignam said. She's taken out her frustrations. You start to build your home and your kids, and you get your ideas and dreams. Some of them come true and some don't. But one shot in the head, and it's all over. I was never ashamed of Johnny, she continues. In the letter he told me to hold your head up. Well, I could never get my head down. But there are times when you just want to go outside and shout, what happened? So in all the confusion of the story we've told today, who is being held account for the four deaths? It is concerning, if this is true, that the people running the FRU valued the information supplied by three agents over the life of an innocent woman, Margaret Perry.
For 12 months, the family of Margaret Perry searched for their missing daughter. Whilst her mum implored the Northern Ireland police to help find their daughter, another wing of the British state knew full well that Margaret was dead and buried in a shallow grave in Mullagmore. The truth about Margaret Perry's death and burial only emerged when the IRA discovered that Burns, Dignam and Stars were British agents. It was the IRA that located her body and informed a priest where it could be found. Had the three informers not been uncovered, it is possible that Margaret Perry's body would never have been found. Almost 30 years later, and inquiries by journalists, and the Stevens Inquiry, and the inquiry by the police ombudsman, Nula O'Lone, have established only some of the facts about the appalling murder of Margaret Perry, and the activities of the FRU and its agents. But much of the work of the FRU still remains clouded in secrecy, cover-up and denial. But none of this helps the family of Margaret Perry. To this day, nobody has been held to account for the role that the British state played in the death of Margaret Perry, for the failure of the FRU to protect an innocent woman prior to her murder, and the failure of the FRU to hold her murderers to account after her death. And what about the murders of the three IRA men? Although Steakknife is the key suspect, no charges have been brought against anyone for their killings. And the families of all these people have to try and get on with their lives, with all these questions hanging over what really happens to their loved ones. It really isn't fair, is it? I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please join our Facebook group to discuss this case and all other aspects of UK true crime. If you'd like to support the show and keep it being produced weekly, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime, where you can enjoy all the monthly full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that is all from me for now. So until we speak again next week, it's cheerio. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.